Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming for this uh, extra special bumper live edition of the Spiked podcast, live at the Battle of Ideas. Um, and wow, what a turnout. It's standing room only. This is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for your support. Um, if you don't know, I'm Fraser Myers. I'm the deputy editor of Spiked and host of this podcast. I'm joined, as ever, uh, by Spiked's editor, Tom Slater, over here, on my far left. Hello. <laughs> then we have the founder of the Equiano Project, Inaya Falarin Iman. Uh, right at the end, we have host of Trigonometry, co-host of Trigonometry, uh, Constantine Kissin, and the author of Beyond Grievance, Rakib Essam. So, hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so today we will talk about the elephant in the room, obviously the big uh, story from the Middle East. We'll talk about what, how that affects us in particular at home. We'll discuss uh, a year on since Elon Musk took over Twitter, what that means for freedom of speech. And we'll touch a bit on the trans debate, uh, particularly in light of the fumbling over conversion therapy. So let's uh, let's kick off. I mean, the big story overnight is, of course, the expansion of uh, Israel's incursion into Gaza. Um, it's been the most intense night of fighting, both on the ground and in terms of aerial bombardments since the conflict began. Tom, I mean, do you want to just set out a few thoughts on this first? Well, no, obviously the images that everyone will have seen on social media are incredibly arresting. It is a reminder, you know, war is hell, not least because there's often the fact that innocent civilians are almost inevitably caught in the crossfire. And there's obviously been a lot of moral condemnation coming from people about this particular offensive. I just think it's really important that as we move into this next phase, a few things are made sort of abundantly clear, which is that this isn't a war that Israel started. Mm. And you would think looking a lot of the, uh, the commentary that they were just doing this entirely of their own volition for no apparent reason, just for bloodlust and whatever. And that gets things so completely the wrong way around. I think it's really important that we get that straight. Um, any attempts, I think, to kind of draw some sort of moral equivalence, which is what a lot of people are doing on social media, between what happened on the 7th of October when Hamas terrorists launched a pogrom, the most brutal, fatal, anti-Semitic atrocity since the Holocaust, and Israel in turn deciding to defend itself and its own citizens. I think anyone trying to make that comparison really should be called out for doing so. The other thing that I think is really important to clock at this juncture, which is there's been obviously a lot of discussion around the question of, of ceasefire. So you'll have not just um, people from the kind of supposedly anti-imperialist left or people who are naturally going to be on the kind of Palestine demonstrations today calling for a ceasefire, but even some of the kind of centrist sensibles, you know, kind of saying, can't we just, can't, can't the killing just stop? And obviously from some of that is understandable. Who wants fighting to go on? Who wants war? Um, largely no one apart from some people in form of this conflict. But I think it's really become abundantly clear that those calls for ceasefire are now just essentially calls for capitulation, the idea that it is illegitimate, a war crime in and of itself for Israel to defend itself. And I also think given the fact that the sort, because of the outbursts that we've seen on our own streets and on social media and in public forums in, in recent weeks, I really think we've got to refuse to take moral lectures from the people who, when they were confronted with that atrocity three weeks ago, did one of two things. They either did a bit of throat clearing for about 30 seconds before going on to condemn Israel, and that's if they were the, the instigators of this particular conflict. Or they openly celebrated it. I know we've all gone hoarse talking about those examples, mm. but it wasn't just a handful of people on Twitter. There are a lot of deleted tweets and there are a lot of speeches which have now been half apologised for, in which people openly celebrated that pogrom as an act of resistance. And I really think as we enter this next phase, as, as, as grim as it is and 
as naturally everyone's heart goes out to the civilians involved, that attempt at moral equivalence and those moral lectures from people who have shown that they have no moral standing really needs to be made clear. And finally, the only thing I say is that um, any articulation of the tragedy, and it is a tragedy that confronts the civilian Palestinians of Gaza, needs to begin from a recognition that it is a tragedy that they have come to be led by these genocidal maniacs. And I think any assessment that doesn't start there is a problem as we go mm. forward. Uh, now, Constantine, um, feel free to respond to any of that, but also I'm, I'm quite keen to focus on, you know, what this means for us domestically. Right now, when we're recording this, there will be many people um, going out on a pro-Palestine protest, some of them uh, calling for a ceasefire, some of them le moved legit by legitimate sympathy for civilian victims. Others with less um, sympathetic motives. I mean, last week we saw people calling for jihad, um, for instance, uh, against Israel. Um, you've written a lot about what this moment reveals about us in the West. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a few things to say. I mean, if just picking up on what I think what Tom said, I think um, all of us feel a tremendous sense of sadness and horror at what's happening in, in Gaza and in Israel, uh, uh, which is why it's important to say that every single person who is being killed in that conflict, their death is on the conscience on one group and one group alone, which is Hamas. Uh, we should be very clear about that. We should also, I think, take a moment to draw the historical parallels here. Uh, at the end of World War II, the United States dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan, a decision which, in my opinion, was perfectly justified and saved lives. Um, and we, uh, Britain, America, and the Soviet Union, flattened 60 German cities, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians. Whose responsibility was that? Hitler. It is the people who started the war and the people who committed atrocities and the people who decided that they will use human shields in order to defend their country. Um, that is exactly what Hamas is doing. In 2014, uh, their spokesman said that this is their tactic deliberately and that they're going to continue to do this. So every life that is being tragically lost in Gaza today and in Israel today is the responsibility of Hamas. I think that should be very clear. Israel, when people said in the wake of the attack uh, two and a half weeks ago that Israel had a right to defend itself, I don't understand what they meant. Did they think that it was possible to destroy or eradicate or degrade the military capacity of Hamas without civilian casualties. I, that, that was never going to be possible. So in order for Israel to be able to defend itself, sadly, this tragedy was always going to happen. Uh, in terms of domestically, um, I think it's very clear that there is a, we have a situation in the UK where a percentage of the population, uh, views this from a tribal lens uh, and believes that these atrocities that are being committed against Israelis are justified. And the calls for proportionality uh, to me are abominable because proportionality would mean Israel invading Gaza and raping and murdering 1,400 civilians. That doesn't seem to me to make much sense. Um, and likewise with the ceasefire, I mean, the reason... We couldn't have a ceasefire with Nazi Germany is that Nazi Germany was unwilling to surrender the people who were committing the atrocities. All Hamas need to do is hand over the hostages, uh, hand over the people who committed the atrocities, and this war would end tomorrow. Uh, and that is what they should do in order to prevent civilian casualties. They won't. Uh, domestically, I think um, 
Uh, we have to acknowledge that we have a problem in this country, a problem that is not going to get better. It's only going to get worse, uh, given our immigration policies, given the fact that uh, we let in uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people illegally every year. We don't know who they are. Many of them are coming from the region where many people have the opinions that we have seen expressed on our streets. Uh, I'm afraid I don't see any positive solution to this. I think it's going to get a lot worse. Rakeep, um let's bring you in on here. I mean, a lot of people have talked about, you know, this is a problem of uh, multiculturalism, a problem of Islamism. That does seem to be where some of the, a lot of the most extreme kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric, anti-Israel rhetoric is coming from. What, what have you made of that discussion? What do you what do you think? Well, I think domestically, I think, you know, I've made this point for us years ago that levels of anti-Semitism are relatively high in British Muslim communities. And I think that at the time when I've published those writings, I've got a great deal of criticism from progressive liberals who are saying that I was victimizing my own religious communities. Now, I'd, I'd make the point that the, the research that I've done, it does show the majority of British Muslims, they reject those anti-Semitic tropes. But the point that I made is that those levels of anti-Semitic attitudes, belief in anti-Jewish uh, conspiratorial um, rhetoric uh, is relatively high in those communities. And, but I think that, of course, I think we do have an issue with, um, multiculturalism. I think it's failed in certain parts of the country. There's a ho continued high levels of segregation in a string of Northern English, uh, post-industrial towns. There's also issues in inner city, uh, parts of London, Birmingham. Uh, something a bit separate, we saw last year's large-scale public disorders in Leicester, which is primarily between Hindu and Muslim youth. And I think that, you know, when you look at the institutional culture there, whether it's universities, um, local council, etc., there's been too much of an emphasis on difference and a lack of emphasis on commonality. And there's been far too much comfort when it comes to attitudes, which in my view, they don't belong in a civilised uh, liberal democracy. So uh, I think that for, it's been a major wake-up call. Some of the things that we've seen on our on our streets, on the streets of Britain, including in London, it's been a huge wake-up call for many progressive liberals. And and and, it, and the reality is, when you look at the, when you look at things as sort of oppressed versus oppressor kind of framework, it means that you you blind yourself to very problematic prejudicial attitudes within certain minority communities. So I think that when you're looking at community relations in the UK, we need to realise that some of the most severe social tensions are between minority groups, and quite often they don't involve the white British mainstream at all. I think that more generally when you're looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and ha British attitudes towards it, it doesn't reflect much of what I've seen on social media platforms such as X, where people are almost treating it as a football derby between Watford and Luton. It's far more serious than that. Um, it's incre incredibly divided and polarised um, on social media platforms. The reality is the majority of British people, they perhaps because they're fairly humble that they don't have much knowledge of the conflict itself. They either have a neutral position or they simply don't know how they feel about mm. um, the conflict more generally. So I think that the one thing that I'd say there is that once again, X is not the, um, it doesn't, it's not representation of how the country feel about the conflict and maybe politicians should take notice of that. We've talked a bit about the sort of Islamist um, problem, but there's also a kind of woke element as well, where at least certainly people who think of themselves as progressive are at the very least, turning a blind eye to what's happening in Aya. Yeah, I mean, I think firstly, I think that we shouldn't let 
the apologists for terror have a monopoly on what it means to be pro-Palestinian. I think actually you can find the sickening, disgusting atrocity that happened um, and think it should be completely condemned whilst also still believing that Israel has the right to defend itself and also that Palestinian people have the right to choose self-determination within a two-state solution. And I think that there's been a lot of people that have attempted to um, essentially suggest that if you... um, condemn what has happened and actually do believe that Israel has a right to exist and to defend itself. And that somehow means that you're not um, concerned or or, or horrified by um, the the loss of life of innocent civilians. And bringing it back um, domestically, what we have seen is really the fusion of some really dark and horrific um, strands within contemporary society and and historical, whether that's traditional anti-Semitism, with uh, the politics of identity. Mm. um, And on top of that, a kind of uh, Islamist, jihadist ideology. And it's really completely blown open what many people have been saying for several years, that those that have claimed to be anti-racist, to be on the side of the marginalised, are really actually providing cover Mm. uh, for an ideology that is the antithesis to all of those things that that despises freedom, that is uh, selective um, in its outrage, hypocritical, um, doesn't really care about marginalised voices uh, to such an extent that it will apologise for terror. I mean, I Many of us have been very critical of Black Lives Matter, but even myself that's been such a critic, I never thought that they would be posting uh, paragliders in in, in celebration for one of the most horrific acts we've seen um, in a generation. And I think it has been a wake-up call for many people that have been sceptical of the criticism of identity politics, but really can see that this has dark and deadly consequences. And Constantine, you know, one of the the more... um horrific things that we've seen uh, in the West. It's been very prominent in London in, uh, and in New York, lots of viral videos of people tearing down posters of Israeli hostages. Now, what the hell do you think is going through someone's head uh, when they're doing this? I mean, why do they think that that is acceptable? Why do they think they're doing good? You know, they're often very pleased with themselves when they do this? I think there are many things likely going on. I think one of the things we've actually seen is that some of these people don't believe that the atrocities happened in the first place. And we have to remember, and perhaps we'll talk about it when we come to our second subject, that uh, we all live in our own reality now, uh, curated by us and for us by the social media platforms that we use. And so I think that's probably part of it. But the other part of it is that human beings are tribal apes. And when our team is doing something, we want to defend them, whatever they're doing. And when the other team is doing something slightly less bad, we will condemn them forcefully and and take all these terrible actions. So I think um, it doesn't surprise me that there's a lack of compassion, uh, particularly because, you know, the, the... the position of uh, people in Gaza and in the West Bank is is not good. I think we should be also acknowledging that. And so the anger that exists about that issue will translate into stupid people doing terrible things, always has done. And uh, Tom, you know, there are calls for, seeing this sort of resurgence in anti-Semitism, there are calls mm-hmm. to deal with this with more policing. People say, why didn't the police, why didn't the Met arrest those people calling for jihad on the streets of London? Mm-hmm. But does that really... they're not misgendering anyone. They're not yeah. misgendering. <laughs> I mean, I think someone um, was uh, arrested just last night for um, insulting... Um, Sir Bob Charlton. Sir Bob, uh, Bobby Charlton, yeah. I mean, it's just... Uh, people could be arrested for anything, but apart from that... But, that, I mean, cracking heads or throwing people into the police fans, it's not going to deal with the problem 
that we're confronted with. It, it's not. I mean, I'm, I share the shock and outrage at the obscene double standards, which obviously exist. I mean, the police have previously gone after gender critical feminists because they've put up posters with such heretical statements as women don't have penises. That literally launched a police probe in Liverpool. Um, you can call for jihad, but you can't call a policeman uh, your lesbian nana. Like All of this stuff has been well rehearsed in recent days, and it is absolutely obscene. And it is a reminder that all of the kind of identitarian speech protections of our age, which we're told are there to protect minorities, just seem to melt away where Jewish people are concerned. And that's something which is really quite striking. The fact that the Metropolitan Police just decided to give London as a kind of lecture on the finer points of Islamic theology <laughs> um, <laughs> tells you something about the moral confusion which is going on. But at the same time, I think we're, we're on the cusp of repeating a pretty profound mistake, which is the idea that you can defeat racism with censorship, that we're a few banned protests away from this menace just completely disappearing. I mean, one of the reasons that groups like Hizbut Tahrir, who are out there chanting for jihad uh, in a spiritual struggle, of course, um, a couple of well, last week, um, one of the reasons they haven't been prescribed is because there was the government would offer advice time again, which is to say, you will just push them underground. You will just uh, uh, give them martyr status and allow them to continue their activities just kind of outside of earshot. Um, and I also think it's doubly important because of the fact that particularly the kind of both the Islamist and the woke leftist challenge to um, Western, enlightened, whatever you want to call them, kind of values around freedom of speech, really depend on, upon the idea these days. They're criticisms that we're kind of just hypocrites, that freedom of speech is just a lie that we tell ourselves, that really just it's just about amplifying the voices of the oppressors and marginalising the voices of the oppressed. So I think there's, there's a, a double duty on us now to really stand by those principles. And also I think there's something about just asking the police to crack down, which lets us off the hook in quite a serious way in terms of confronting this, both in rhetoric and counter demonstrations on the streets if necessary, it's easy to call for a clampdown. It's a lot harder to take the responsibility to challenge this wherever you find it yourself. And it's been heartening actually in the last couple of days, seeing that both in the UK and the US, the people who, whenever they see someone ripping down one of those posters or chanting something absolutely obscene, who are telling them what they think of them, more of that rather than more censorship, I think would be a, a way forward at this point. Definitely. And I, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I mean, I Whilst I totally agree that it's not going to tackle the root cause, I mean, I am quite conflicted on this one. I mean, I do think that actually going out on the streets, chanting from the river to the sea, which many people, um, it, it's widely known that that essentially means the eradication of Israel, um, calling for jihad. I do think that that is creating a climate where a lot of Jewish people, particularly um, visibly Jewish people, do not feel that they can go about their daily life because there's a kind of atmosphere of intimidation and this kind of happening in London every single week. So I do think that, um, of course, we should not be hypocrites when it comes to uh, protecting and defending freedom. But I do think there's a very big difference between people trying to shut down people for um, saying that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and actually those that are essentially calling for or, or strongly sympathising um, with a kind of strand of anti-Semitism. And I do think that as kind of free speech advocates, I do think we have to recognise those distinctions in what is happening. I, the only thing I'd just tack on to that very quickly, though, is the fact that in a way, I think that's a reflection of the fact we've been playing the free speech debate kind of on easy mode mm -hmm. for quite a while. Um, free speech advocates are gifted with some eminently defendable <laughs> defendants at this point, you know, because of how low the bar for censorship has gotten. But it is the, the 
standard for freedom of speech, the test is always, will you support it even for things that you absolutely despise, which is what we've been confronted with here. And this is the lesson of history as well. People will always throw Nazi Germany in your face. This is one of the rare examples where the kind of rhetoric we're dealing is very reminiscent of that. And Weimar Germany had hate speech laws, as we know. Joseph Goebbels and Julius Streicher were thrown in prison for their libels against Jews. And again, we see the same pattern time and again. It's used as a propaganda exercise. There were literally posters of Hitler with tape over his mouth. Um, and this is the propaganda win that we can hand these people if we succumb to censorship. Incitement to violence, of course, that's not a free speech issue. That's a crime that involves speech, as far as I'm concerned. It's a completely separate matter. But I think we really need to hold the line here, as tempting it is, not least given the incredibly obscene double standards that we've seen in terms of the enforcement of speech protections in recent weeks. And, and just to tack on a sort of more contemporary example, um, Holocaust denial um, is not illegal in the UK. Um, obviously, it's a completely abhorrent idea. Um, but it is illegal in France and Germany and in many continental European countries. Where do you think they have the worst Holocaust denial? It's not here. It's absolutely in France where it's, you know, these things bubble out constantly. Uh, constantly you want to well, where I disagree with the conversation, I mean, I said earlier, I think this problem is only going to get worse. And I think partly it's because of the conversation we're having. Um, the question that we should be honest about is when people are calling for jihad, that is incitement to violence. When people in Australia chant gas the Jews in front of the Sydney Opera House, that is incitement to violence. Yeah. And I have never called myself a free speech absolutist for precisely this reason, because incitement to violence is different and should be treated differently under the law and by the police. And yes, I do want the police to arrest people who uh, chant th things like jihad. I do want the police to deal with them. And the thing that we're really not talking about, to the extent that those people are foreign nationals, why are they here and why are they allowed to remain here? Tom, John? I mean, we could go back and forth on this order. I mean, yeah. I'm a free speech absolutist, kind of US style free speech absolutist. I think where incitement is concerned, you have to draw it incredibly tightly. I mean, the kind of American standards, kind of imminent and direct incitement and so on. Um, but at the same time, I completely understand the concerns here, given that we're dealing with a uh, menace, which is of such a different character to anything else that we usually discuss. I just think it's important that we hold to those principles and also recognise that when we're talking about calls for censorship here, we're not just talking about calls for the censorship of incitement to violence. There's often calls for just shutting down the protests, full stop. Um, so I get that um, it can be a, a lonely position to defend a kind of absolutist free speech position, but I think it's incredibly important at the current stage. But it can't just stop there. You know, we can't just turn this into a discussion as it kind of is turning into about where the limits of free speech are when we need to use our free speech to confront this menace and to do so with as much courage as we can muster. And as I say, I think it, there's an element of turning towards the police to deal with this, which is not just going to be ineffective, I think is kind of a cop out. As well. And uh, Rakeem, just sort of returning to the sort of double standard mm -hmm. at play. I mean, what do you think provoked the Met to give this lecture on what jihad is, that it's an internal struggle? I mean, is this kind of just multicultural ideology run riot where, you know, we simply are not treating, I, I guess, you know, even extreme Islamists the same way that we would treat ordinary citizens. Yeah, I, I think the Met need to stick to the bread and butter of policing before giving me lessons on Islam, to be honest. But I think, <laughs> I, 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 I think what, it, what it also, for me, I mean, my view is very clear. I think the Met, I, I think it, it's finished. 
as an institution. I think it's far too big to succeed. I've, I've argued for it to be disbanded. There needs to be a mass clear out. And I think perhaps it needs to be broken down into smaller police forces or maybe absorbed into existing police forces such as Essex, Kent, Hertfordshire. Um, I just think as an organisation, I just think the rot is far too deep. And I think that events in the past couple of weeks um, have shown that. I just wanted to follow up on Constantine's point that, of course, you know, foreign nationals, who, in my view, are Islamist extremists, they have no right to be here in the UK. But the, but the issue is actually some of the most problematic and aggressive anti-Semitic attitudes that really come to the surface are among UK-born, very well-educated, and you'd say maybe conventionally integrated in that they might even interact with people outside of their own ethnic and religious group. And I think that that's a very serious issue. Now, of course, I think that in relatively segregated British Muslim communities, levels of anti-Semitism may be particularly high. But make, make no mistake, in, in what among those... British Muslims who may appear to be very well integrated, white collar as well, and highly educated. Um, the idea that anti-Semitism doesn't exist among th those particular subsections within the British Muslim population, in my view, is simply not true. And I think that is a serious issue. And I, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just to add to that. So I, I agree with the, the points that were made about um, immigration and multiculturalism um, and some of the way in which uh, anti-Semitism has proliferated within um, Islamist communities. But at the same time, um, many of these ideas have gained legitimacy within our mainstream cultural institutions. When we look at um, the academy and how we've had you know, thousands of uh, students from range of backgrounds, um, essentially viewing this through this narrow decolonizing lens, completely um, obf obfuscating and flattening the historical complexities into um, oppressor versus oppressed, which essentially has now argued that if you are designated um, as oppressed, then you have absolve all moral responsibility and actually any act, any heinous act can even be recast as virtuous, um, which is essentially given a green light for um, anyone that can be claimed to have oppression to act in any way, shape or form. So whilst undoubtedly uh, many of these ideas can uh, be popular amongst certain um, cultural ethnic communities, we also have to recognise that um, this ideology has gained hold in many of our mainstream institutions and is being propped up um, by public intellectuals, um, the media class in many, many different ways. So it's much more complicated and difficult to deal with than just dealing with an immigration issue. Here at Spiked, we know that doing things your own way can be incredibly rewarding. And we also know that starting a business is often the best way to secure the kind of freedom you deserve. But actually making that happen is a lot easier said than done. Luckily, there's a solution, and it sounds like this. Yes, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the revolutionary all-in-one commerce platform that can make your business dreams come true. Right now, Shopify is supporting millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're trading in canvas trampolines or tinned baked beans, Shopify can simplify how you sell your goods both online and in person. The days of overcomplicated management systems are over. Innovating your products and adapting to the new challenges of today is a walk in the park with Shopify. Now, I know what you're thinking. How exactly does any of this work? Well, Shopify covers all the necessities from a smooth point of sale system ready for your shop front to an all-in-one e-commerce setup. Plus, Shopify will help connect you with new customers by putting your business on social media marketplaces like YouTube and TikTok. And the best bit? None of this comes at the cost of your freedom. 
Shopify gives you full control over your business and your brand. And through advanced third-party apps and targeted business courses, Shopify will help you constantly expand the limits of what your business can accomplish. So why not make the jump? If you're serious about becoming truly independent, now is the time to get on board with Shopify. So sign up now for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash spiked. Go to shopify.co.uk slash spiked to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash spiked. I want to return to the sort of free speech subject, but um, to talk about it online, really, because it's been a year this week since uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter, since he sent that bizarre tweet with a picture of him holding a sink uh, inside (laughs) Twitter (laughs) HQ with the caption, let that sink in. Constant. I mean, the, to start off with, um, you know, sticking with the Middle Eastern theme, uh, a lot, he's been accused of essentially allowing disinformation to run riot. Um, you know, I think lots of us have probably seen plenty of uh, AI-generated images um, about the war on coming from both sides. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Is it? Um, is it all bad? You know, have we let f- have we let speech fly too freely uh, online? I think it's a very complicated and nuanced issue uh and it's a work in progress um i I definitely think that certainly from my experience i can tell you i see way more anti-semitism on x than i did a year ago i'm actually very comfortable with that i always said that would happen when you open up uh, the conversation you are allowing people who have unpleasant ideas and things to say to say them i prefer that uh, to the restrictiveness and censorship that we had before, even if at times it may be personally uncomfortable for me. Um, in terms of uh, the disinformation, I think, um, as I say, it's a transitionary period when we are confronted by the rapid emergence of AI and the ability to generate things that look and seem realistic. Um, and also what you're seeing is the monetization of Twitter or of X has created incentives that are much more powerful than the ones we had before. Before it was, you know, I want 400,000 followers. Now it's like, I want 400,000 followers because I can make a living from this. Um, and therefore you see people, I mean, I quote tweeted a guy who has over, uh, I think 1.5 million Twitter followers and makes money from Twitter who, who posted a video of American soldiers landing in Israel allegedly, Mm. uh, and about to invade Lebanon or something. And it turned out it was a video uh, from 2002 and American soldiers arriving in Romania. And this was seen by millions of people. So it's an issue. I do actually think that uh, they will work it out. I think many of the changes that have happened on, on Twitter have been very positive. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think in terms of you know, uh, whatever hate speech is, if such a thing exists, I've never really had that much of a problem with it. I, I block people who say hateful things that I don't like. I think that's a perfectly usable mechanism. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. They should be allowed to say what they think. Um, the disinformation, misinformation thing is a different conversation. I think that community notes has actually been an incredible mm-hmm. uh, invention that has completely changed uh, the way that we treat that issue. And maybe, you know, I, one of the things I've suggested is maybe if you continue to post things 
things that get community noted over and over that is somehow reflected when people come to your tweets and your profile. So it's like an Uber rating. Oh, this guy's just posting <laughs> rubbish all the time. And then you stop using them. You stop consuming their content. I think, and I suspect that's probably what will happen. I would certainly hope so. <laughs> However, I will say this. I am very optimistic that Elon's takeover of Twitter uh, is a, a positive change in the social media landscape, as a friend of mine is fond of saying, zero is a special number. When you had zero social media big tech platforms that had a more open stance on free speech, it meant that we had a complete lock on information that was allowed to be discussed. The Overton window narrowed massively. Um, I think the fact that uh, they took away the blue ticks from, you know, the, there was situations where somebody with 2000 followers would have a blue tick because they happened to, you know, make coffee at the New Statesman. Uh, and somebody who's <laughs> actually a legitimate journalist with hundreds of thousands of, of uh, followers would have no sort of reputational approval uh, because they happened to work in a new media organization like yours or like ours. Yeah, we had no blue tick. So yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, not for followers. one of trying. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think what has happened is uh, that has taken away the legacy media's lock on authority of information mm. that has negative trade-offs like the ones we've just discussed but i also think it has very positive ones i i, I see elon is, is a problem solver i think he will be conscious that it's a problem uh, and I, i'm quite optimistic that that there are going to be changes going forward so i think um i'm pleased the takeover happened uh, it's a mixed bag so far I am optimistic that over time, uh, many more problems will be addressed and we're going to have a, a better balance of uh, openness and, you know, sense as well. Yeah. Tom, um, often the accusation of disinformation, misinformation is coming from the mainstream media, places mm. like the BBC. Um, I'm thinking of Mariana Spring in particular. Don't these people have a bit of a nerve telling other people that they're not telling the truth? Oh, yeah. I mean... When you hear people from the BBC and the New York Times say that accounts that spread disinformation and misinformation should be booted off of Twitter, they should be careful what they wish for, mm. you know, given what we've seen <laughs> over the course of the past couple of weeks. You know, they're essentially handed Hamas press releases about the bombing of that hospital, um, and they just repeated it verbatim in their live blogs. There was a fascinating piece in the New Statesman, funnily enough, by Lewis Goodall from the News Agents podcast. You might have seen it. Um, centrist dads. Yeah, the kind of smug centrist yeah. trio sort of thing, which has become quite popular, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> he made the point that uh, it's such a tragedy that we're going through these wars now with social media because it's not like the last time that we had a set of wars where all you had was the government and the BBC. You know, mm. wasn't that a brilliant time? <laughs> <laughs> Alistair Campbell would create a document laying out the perfect truth and then deliver it to Andrew Marr to read out to <laughs> the nation. So I think social media obviously comes with problems and all sorts of things that we need to tackle. It's also become a tremendous tool for challenging misinformation yes. um, in the form of community notes, in other things. There is still the problem of echo chambers. I think we see that expressed as Constantine was just during too earlier with those filmed exchanges of those scumbags ripping those posters down saying, where's your evidence? That's misinformation. That hasn't happened. So that is clearly a problem. But at the same time, it's very obvious to me that censorship is not the answer to that yeah. particular problem. And what I think has been interesting about Musk's experiment is that there are obviously all kinds of things a platform could do in a pro-free speech fashion to deal with these things by devolving powers down to the users, by allowing them to become the people who are answering back rather than someone sat in a room somewhere mm. in San Francisco deciding what's true and what isn't. Mm. Why are we not exploring more of that across, you know, across the internet, really, rather than just constantly seeing censorship 
and deferring to these mainstream institutions which have failed us time and again. Clearly, that's obviously not worth well for us. And Anaya, do you think sometimes the charge of disinformation just means I don't agree with that? Yeah, I think that is undoubtedly um, some of the time that that happens. And I think you know, some points have been alluded to there. But I, I, but I think when it comes to the war we have seen in the last couple of weeks, as Tom alluded to, that social media can become you know a powerful tool for having counter-information to the uh, narrative that is pushed um, in particular institutions and actually um, social media function to put pressure on the BBC and other um, organisations to report things in a more accurate um, and a more balanced way. But I also do agree with Constantine. Like, I do think it is a work in progress. You know, I undoubtedly do see a lot more racist content um, on, on uh, Twitter than I saw um, a couple of years ago. And on top of that, with the fog of war and the complexities of war, there's obviously narrative warfare going on um, where lots of people are amplifying um, information that they think will um, affirm their pre-existing narrative. And there's all sorts of other things, but that's a you know, a user experience issue that hopefully um, Elon Musk is going to be aware of and, and would want to deal with. So I do think that um, the whole concept of disinformation, uh, as we saw with the pandemic, um, was often used um, as a way to essentially shut down any kind of disagreement. Um, but at the same time, we can see that... Um, there is such a thing as uh, information that is false, that is pushed um, within certain platforms. And we have seen that um, with the war as well. So I do I do think there's a um, nuance and complexity there. But I think it will be very interesting now as we go towards not just the next election in the UK, but the US election, um, given that uh, that was very much part of the tactics of the previous owners of social media. And mm. that was the um, the laptop um, and all the other things um, around Joe Biden and his son and, and Donald Trump, they will not have that ability to do the same thing again under Elon Musk. And hopefully we'll actually have a much more um, freer way of engaging in an election um, via social media. Yeah, uh, that's that's actually what I wanted to ask you about, Rakeem. I mean, I think it's worth sort of looking back um, just over a year ago, what uh, Twitter and other you know social media companies were up to censoring the laptop story, banning people for saying you know referring to a transgender woman as he for instance. Those were the kind of things that were being shut down. Uh, now it feels like we can have a more open conversation, even if there are some you know nastier elements around the side. Oh, no, of course, and actually, if you open up the conversation, you may well be at risk of facing more abuse. I mean, I've been called a far right hack, Islamist, infiltrator, and a communist all in one day. <laughs> <laughs> so proud to a be broad them, portfolio. Them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think the point, if you want to be an active player um, on social media platforms, unfortunately, it does come with the territory. And for me, it's war off. Ducks back. Of, of course, if he, if he's going, if he's getting to the stage where, for example, um, women are facing, you know, threats of misogynistic violence, then I think that, that is that is different territory. Um, but overall, of course, I think when you're looking at disinformation and misinformation. I'm far more worried about the BBC's coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It hasn't covered itself in glory at all. And that's our national public broadcaster. And, and I think that's another institution perhaps is, is also too big to succeed. I think that in many of these public sector institutions, which are incredibly large, there just seems to be far too many people that they don't take their basic duties and responsibilities seriously at all. And I think another institution would be the NHS, for example. And I think that's a very serious issue. They don't take pride in, you know, really prioritizing their bread and butter responsibilities. And in BBC's case, 
and you have to be very considered. Israel, is, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is incredibly loaded. Emotions are highly charged. That's when you need the BBC to be really, it, it, you know, it needs to take its responsibilities particularly seriously when it comes to um, th- this conflict in particular. Um, I, I think more generally, though, I think social media, it's been, a, it's been a great source of good in the sense of really acting as a check and balancing mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. on those institutions when they are clearly underperforming, woefully underperforming. So, of course, uh, you know, uh, my fellow panellists have said it's a work in progress. I like the idea of people get continuously community noted. They receive a, they have a bad rate on their profile so people stray away from them in terms of digesting and taking their content content seriously your, your opinions are rubbish two stars yeah. well <laughs> I, I think i think it's a very decent but, idea but it's not your opinions are rubbish no, it's, it's, it's the incorrect fact yeah, yeah. Or, or it's the fact yeah. that you're willing to amplify content without you know taking not not taking it seriously not yeah. approaching that content in a yeah. considered way um uh, constantine um so we're we're all pretty much agreed that it's a good thing that um Twitter or X. I keep forgetting to call it X. It's just not like a catch on, is it? No. I'm going to call it no. <laughs> Sorry, Elon. Um, I'm sure he's listening. We, we take it, yeah. <laughs> big, big fan. Uh, he's right at the back. Uh, the, are we, we're taking one step forward and two steps back, though. Um, certainly in the UK, certainly in Europe, where, you know, so we have a freer social media platform, but now we've just um, passed the Online Safety Act. Europe is going to pass a, a, a similar digital law, services, the digital act, services yeah, and act, and in Ireland, etc. Uh, I actually just wanted to pick up on I oh, think sure, what yeah, it was a very, very good point that both Tom and Rakib made, which is I don't know that the BBC would be calling Hamas a terrorist organisation today if we didn't have social media. I think the, mm. the opportunity to challenge mainstream narratives that are incorrect. Uh, via social media is actually a tremendous opportunity and it's a democratization of information that I think has been tremendously beneficial to our society. It comes with costs, ones we've mm. already discussed. Uh, in terms of on, online um, online controls, I, I think, sadly, I've always said that I, I think the, um, the idea of the wild, wild west of the internet, which I was fortunate enough to enjoy uh, uh, because I'm I'm 40 now. I think that young people will never see a free internet again. I don't think that's going to happen. And one of the reasons is the technology is very powerful. It is very very powerful. Uh, and so uh, if 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 I can start a riot from my phone, you can see why governments would start to get involved in that. I think thanks to the great work of the Free Speech Union, Toby Young and Silky Carlo, Big Brother Watch, and lots and lots of other people raising this issue, the teeth have been taken out somewhat of the online safety bill. I'm not saying it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I actually think, um, you know, sometimes we talk about this issue and we imagine that the people who are attempting to restrict what we say and see on the internet are these evil, tyrannical authoritarians. I actually think it's much worse than that. Um, and I have some experience of this. Uh, the, if I may just uh, yeah. take a moment. Um, the, the last time I was on Question Time, people don't know this, but when you do Question Time, they don't put out all the program. The first question uh, isn't released to the public. Um, and people are more relaxed and they say things perhaps sometimes they wouldn't say uh, on a broadcast. And the first question at that particular moment was Donald Trump had just been unbanned from Facebook. And Fiona Bruce went around the panel. I made the somewhat uncontroversial point, in my opinion, that the, the leader of the biggest and most powerful country in the world should be able to speak in public. Um, Outrageous. Uh, got no response at all from the audience. Uh, and then they went around and they went around eventually to the labor woman who said, banging the table, we must have the safest Internet in the world. <laughs> 
And I'm what, safer than North Korea? <laughs> and the, my point is, we, it's worse than a tyrannical authoritarian approach because these people are doing it for our own good. Mm. And they don't understand that safety comes with trade-offs, i.e. loss of freedom. So um, the, the, the problem we are fighting is these people are well-intentioned. And I think it's the C.S. Lewis quote, that a tyranny exercise for the benefit of its victims uh, is the worst of all because the people who torment us for our own good will torment us forever yeah. uh, because they do so with the approval of their own conscience. So we have to... The main thing I think we have to do going forward is to try reintroduce into the public conversation uh, the very idea that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. This is a quote I'm accused of abusing by everybody because, it, you know, Thomas Sowell is brilliant. But that is, I think, actually how we are ever going to make progress on this issue is if we get back to the idea that when we increase safety, we reduce freedom often uh, and uh, because otherwise we're never going to win the argument. Right. Um, let's move on to talk about the uh, trans debate. I'm sure that's what everyone's here for. No, um, <laughs> the, uh, the Tory party is having a bit of a wobble over this question of trans conversion therapy. Now, it's interesting. I think this is an interesting point to sort of take stock as to where we are in the trans debate, because if we cast our minds back to sort of this time last year, it felt as if the sort of edifice or the house of cards, if you like, was falling down. You had the Tavistock closed down, people recognising some of the horrors that were happening there. Um, Mermaids, the uh, trans children charity, was being investigated by the Charity Commission. Politicians were suddenly uh, finding the courage uh, to say that women can't have penises. Or not all of or, them. Or not all of them at the time, Keir Starmer still, or, yeah. you know. How many does he think they had? There's a 99.9%, there's which means that one in a thousand women do have a penis. That, that's still a lot of penises. It's a lot of <laughs> <laughs> We have a lot of experimentation to do to find out. <laughs> but, you know, Rishi Sunak seems rhetorically, again, he, yep. he's quite proud of himself for saying women don't have penises. <laughs> why, why is this? Uh, it's well done. Do you want to? Gold star, but it's now potentially we don't know potentially pushing through this legislation that could roll back all those all those gains. Although, you know, yeah, I think progress. I think that's a big part of the problem is that the bar has gotten so low. <laughs> <laughs> what is a kind of commonsensical response to this? And also, the the Tory party is, is playing this game because one thing that should always be recognised about the current parliamentary Tory party is that they are responsible for a lot of these mm. initiatives. They got behind them in a massive way. The gender recognition reform proposals, which obviously Scotland in a different form took up, but, but that was very much a, a viable proposi proposition um, because Theresa May brought it forward and she was part of that kind of tendency, which was that because we were considered the nasty party, we need to now embrace this incredibly nasty, misogynistic ideology as a way for making up for that. And you see that continued again with the question of guidance in schools around social transitioning. You see that repeated again with this point about um, trans conversion therapy. Your, your hope is that it's just going to be one of those things that soon that kind of quietly lets fall out of the mm -hmm. King's speech. But that's a sad state of affairs when doing something as commonsensical as ensuring that these kinds of not particularly well thought through proposals are brought in. Um, and I think that's one thing on the trans conversion therapy thing. We should be really bear that in mind is trans conversion therapy as a branding exercise is genius because obviously it recalls kind of the horrific, violent electrodes kind of conversion therapies that we might have seen in the past um, used against gay people. Whereas there's two things we obviously need to bear in mind. One of which is that trans conversion therapy, where it has been banned, can often apply to any form of non-affirmative care, as mm. it's called. So anything that would challenge a gender-confused young person about their situation, trying to work out, is it something else? Is it, or, is it autism? Is, is it some other issue? 
could be seen as nudging up towards that ban. And the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that an awful lot of um, children who present with gender dysphoria turn out to just be gay. Mm. So you put those two things together and banning trans conversion therapy becomes a form of gay conversion therapy. And I think that's something that um, that point really needs to be made more in public because as ever when you're dealing with these ideologies is that they present themselves as again, as being on the side of the angels, when often the details is something much murkier that we really need to confront. But I just, unfortunately, <laughs> the only hope I have for the Tory party is that they just quietly drop these things. Mm. But obviously, you can only then think that the Labour Party will resurrect a lot of these things when it does come back into power. Well, yeah, yeah you brought up the Labour Party. It does seem that they're in favour of this uh, ban. But also, uh, Annalise Dodds um, is suggesting that people should potentially face jail time for misgendering because at the moment some people have been arrested for it um no one's people have been convicted for it even but they've managed to overturn their convictions on appeal but it would bring uh, misgendering into line with kind of racial and religious hatred which could mean people potentially spend time behind bars for misgendering which as most of us actually know is telling the truth we should call it a trans jihad and then everything's <laughs> going to be fine <laughs> you know i <laughs> I mean, it's just really clutching at straws. I mean, I saw something, you know, yesterday or the day before that, that Stonewall was going to pick up another campaign in the next week, which was uh, to campaign against asexual discrimination. And I just thought, <laughs> wow, this apparently this is a really big problem. It is Asexual Awareness Week, by the way, yeah. in case, just to make you all aware. <laughs> and I mean, when it comes to conversion therapy, I mean... It, if someone's being intimidated, if they're being threatened, if they're being coerced, that is already um, a crime. What this essentially is trying to do is to create an atmosphere of censorship and to essentially prevent any uh, reasonable discussion with perhaps a young person or an adult that might be experiencing gender dysphoria and want to look at other options rather than you know, essentially irreversible uh, medical surgery. And that is you know, a, a horrible situation that um, many politicians are signing up to um, in order to appear virtuous, completely ignoring all of the criticisms, all of the concerns from a whole range of different groups. And as um, Tom said, I mean, there's been many feminists and LGB activists who have talked about the fact that this is the new conversion therapy, that many um, lesbian and gay people have talked about if they were, if they grew up today, um, they would have been trans because they understood when they were young that their sexual attraction to the same sex um, may have meant that they were not meant to be um, a particular sex. And therefore, if they were born today, then they would have been told by society, not only are they trans, but that is that is a good thing. That's the, that's the way that they should go. And so I think that, you know, we're letting down, um, not just, you know, the, the trans people that want to just live privately in public and not have their identity politicised, um, but also the uh, thousands of young gay and lesbian kids that are having their um, sexuality recast as trans. Um, so I just think, I think it's a really sad um, example. And it's just another thing that the Conservative Party have not only failed to be conservative, but uh, cannot <laughs> stand by any particular line. Uh, Rakeem, do you think this kind of stuff poses a risk for Labour? I mean, at the moment, they're soaring ahead in the polls. Everyone's just assuming that uh, they've got the next election in, in the bag. But it does become embarrassing when, you know, Keir Starmer struggles to say what a woman is and things like that. that it's something it's a problem that they should be nipping in the budget thing. No, absolutely. And I, th I think it's hugely embarrassing. But I, I think the reason why I still think that it won't do all that much damage to Labour is largely because there's issues such as the cost of living crisis, uh, NHS backlog, um, 
<laughs> housing crisis as well. And I think those issues are more immediate, if, if truth be told. And I think that people are really, you know, if, if they're going to be thinking about things like poverty reduction, that's actually where Labour will be at an advantage because traditionally Labour does have ownership of those kind of issues. But of course, I've, I've looked upon, you know, the radical transgenderism, the spread of it in recent times. I find it absolutely shocking. Um, to be honest. Uh, but I find it interesting that they're looking to tie the sort of opposition to radical transgenderism with racial and religious hatred, mm. uh, when you'll probably find the, the, the greatest opposition to radical transgenderism will be within, in my view, socially conservative religious minorities. So if someone says, well, actually, you know, religious belief is a protected characteristic, and because of my religious belief, I don't want to entertain any kind of um, radical transgenderism. How, how will the left respond to that? Mm. How will Starmer um, respond to that? If, if a, a socially conservative, one of his own socially conservative Muslim counsellors says, well, actually, I, I, I don't agree with anything to do with you know, what you're saying in terms of trans-related policy. So I think that the left is actually going to tie itself in knots. And these tensions, they, they, they can't be reconciled. So it'd be very interesting to see how they progress. And Constantine, do you think this movement uh, maybe sort of takes advantage a little bit of our... I, I don't know, our kindness, our tolerance, actually, because you know, although they go around calling everyone transphobic, actually, a lot of us, you know, we do want equality. We do want people to treat, be treated fairly uh, and equally. And a lot of very, very dangerous and bad ideas are sort of smuggled in under that um, banner. Well, first of all, as someone married with a young child, I have a great deal of sympathy for the problems faced by asexual people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, asexual awareness week is, is important, if you ask me. Um, but uh, I actually think I want to come back to what Tom was talking about uh, and this, this phrase, trans conversion therapy. Mm. Uh, one of the biggest takeaways from recent episodes that we've done on my show, we haven't released the episode yet, is with a guy called Michael Malice over in the US. And one of the things he said to me, it's, it's an obvious thing actually, but it really crystallized for me what we're dealing with. He said, these people use language to manipulate, not to communicate. And the way we are going to start to win these battles, I think, is by finding language that accurately describes what we're talking about. We're not talking about trans conversion therapy. We're talking about allowing young children time to think and to make decisions about their bodies that will be with them for the rest of their lives. We have to find punchy and clear language to start to position it correctly rather than arguing about uh, trans conversion therapy, because when it is described as trans conversion therapy, you are never going to win that argument ever. Uh, and so that's, I think, the, the point I would make. In terms of empathy, I think, frankly, at this point, everyone who actually understands this issue kind of isn't really persuaded by the argument mm -hmm. that this is about empathy, because to me, the empathetic thing to do is to provide young people who may be gay or gender non-conforming or whatever with the opportunity to make that decision in a constructive, sensible, reasonable way with the help of time, uh, consultations, some kind of talking therapy. These are things that they actually need. To me, that is the compassionate and empathetic thing to do. So I think it's a failure on the part of the critics of this worldview uh, that we are in a position where their attempts to essentially transition children at a young age are being presented as the empathetic, compassionate thing, when in fact they're exactly the opposite. Right. Um, I think it's probably time to go out to our audience.
Um, I just want to kind of pick up maybe on the point that Inai was making about the loss of the, like the institutions losing support for Israel. And also I think Ricky's point about um, British Muslims as well, but kind of beyond that, I think like youth support for the, even for the existence of the state of Israel seems to be just bottoming out. And a lot of the surveys that released kind of show that even quite, you know, inflammatory statements about Hamas being justified show huge amounts of support um, among people under 25. And as a teacher, I definitely noticed that it's deeply uncool for kids to stand up in support of Israel and conversely, like really high status, I argue, like for the kind of oppressed and um, cause of the Palestinians. And I just wondered, sort of what possible antidotes could we have that or even um, what that might say about the possible future of the state of Israel if it's losing support among the young West? Uh, I mean, Constant, you were kind of suggesting earlier that maybe sort of Palestine is winning the culture war, or the propaganda war. Is that is there that sense? Can something be done to turn that? Well, well it's one of the biggest criticisms I've had of uh progressive jews actually uh which is that when you uh, when you buy into the ideology of intersectionality mm. you are sowing the seeds of your own destruction because the moment you introduce the idea into society that your level of privilege can be measured by the outcomes you have in society jews uh west africans etc indian uh british people indian americans uh, japanese asian etc uh you very quickly end up in a position where you are the oppressor group no matter what is happening so even when you're being massacred in israel mm. you are still privileged and therefore you are to be opposed in this oppressor oppressed dynamic and i think um we have to reject this entire um neo-marxist concept which is what it is uh wholesale and abandon this idea that we can tell whether someone is privileged or not on the basis of how well they've done. Many people are successful because they've overcome tremendous challenges. Um, that does not mean that they're privileged. And I think that's where a lot of all of this comes from. Uh, but yes, I mean, among young people, um, you know, we saw that I'm sure many people saw the polling whereby a majority of young people believe that what happened in Israel was genocide, but they also think it's justified. Mm. And I think that's where we are, because if you break people's brains with intersectionality, well, then it's perfectly internally coherent. Inai, you want to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really important point. And I don't think that we should underestimate it. I mean, we it, it might sound flippant, but, you know, I think some people may have seen the you know, sex workers for Palestine or mm. you know, reproductive, reproductive rights, rights. activists for, for Palestine. And I think chickens for KFC. Yeah. yeah. Or, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the way in which um, all of these different um woke quote-unquote subjects have been just amalgamated into this one issue um and all, all together which is um essentially just created this right side of history you must view um, think this and, and you're virtuous and um i do think social media has got a lot to play in it i think um we're seeing a kind of similar George Floydification um, of politics. I mean, for since George Floyd, I had something very similar. You know, I posted on my Instagram just um, the October Declaration um, and I signed it and essentially condemning anti-Semitism. And I had loads of people that I hadn't spoken to for years essentially say, what about the Palestinians? And send, sent me like 10 links of these clipped up videos of people essentially saying that, you know, think about the context, um, Israel's a terrorist state, all of these mm. kinds of things. And it was it's like the White Lives Matter response. It, or something. Yeah. <laughs> all all exactly. lives matter. It's a yeah. similar sort of thing. You know, yeah. It's a reflection. Yeah. So I, I, I do think that this is something that is 
being proliferated amongst young people and is part of this wider ideology, um, the decolonization ideology, the identity politics, um, the, that all of these issues are being folded into one. And I, I really don't think that we should underestimate mm -hmm. that this is, this may well be a generational struggle. And Israel right now is counting on um, the support of America and, and America's allies. But as we've seen with what's happening with Keir Starmer, and there's increasing pressure on him mm -hmm. from different parts of the Labour Party in order to change his position on this. And as the generations go on, that may well become far more powerful. So I do think that our response right now must be authoritative, must be strong in order to send a really important message. Mm. And I, th I think it's important to kind of go on the offensive with this as well, because when people suggest, um, as has happened in kind of identitarian circles, that yes, that was an atrocity, but what do you expect? You know, we've gotten to the point where like a pogrom is the voice of the unheard. That's kind of how it's being presented at the moment. The profound inhumanity of that should be obvious to anyone in this room, I'm sure, especially it, given the circumstances, given it being the most fatal and awful anti-Semitic atrocity since the Holocaust. But at the same time, the incredible racism of presenting the Palestinians or the Muslims in this equation, oh, that's just what they do, isn't it? Really should be called out as well. So I think kind of fighting them on that front is quite important. Re just trying to demonstrate as best we can, whether it works or, or doesn't, I don't know, just how this ideology in the name of fighting racism is making excuses for racist atrocities and continuing to propagate racist stereotypes, I think would get us some way along the road. But I've also think, and you see it reflected in the kind of sex workers for Palestine or the queers for Palestine or all these different things that have cropped up, people waving a rainbow flag on one of those Palestine demonstrations and it being immediately snatched off of them by um, an Islamist. Um, I think it goes to show that all of this stuff about, you know, the, the thing about the woke social justice lot is that really this is just about a, a hyper or an over-the-top concern about minority rights or racism, or whatever. Mm. At best, that's a second-order thing for them. It's a sort of motif. It's a it's a disguise to a certain extent. I think what we've seen reflected is their, their fundamental problem is with kind of Western enlightened values themselves. Any blow to that is good, even if it comes in the form of anti-Semitic, genocidal, as well as misogynistic and homophobic bigotry in the form of a group like Hamas. So will exposing that win over the younger generation? How do we make Israel cool? I don't know. But I think we've, we, we, the least we can do is expose it for what it is and what's really going on here, I guess. Rakeem, just quickly. No, I, I think that there's a, in many of our institutions, there's a crisis. There's a, there's a cultural crisis there. And I think it's driven by bigotry of low expectations that seeing British Muslims as some kind of homogenous monolithic block that needs to be protected um, on the verge of being mollycoddled. I think that this is why you see the problems. This is why you see many of those positions um, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's also why we've seen such failures when it comes to various cases of group-based uh, child sexual abuse in many parts of the country. And it's also the reason why you see the, the failures associated with PREVENT, the fact that um, there's such a mismatch between the ideological composition of cases referred to PREVENT and the actual wider terror-related picture uh, in the country. So I, I think that it, it, there is a real... There's a culture there where there's those racial and religious sensitivities. Constantine talked about how discrimination towards Jews, um, affluent people or maybe Gujarati, uh, Hindu heritage, Chinese, um, Chinese ethnic group in the UK and also in the United States, that discrimination towards this group is fair game. You hear that sort of that theory of a Jewish privilege, a spin off from white privilege. And, and I think that what, what you also have, you have this dynamic where 
discriminatory attitudes within lower socioeconomic groups, relatively deprived groups such as British Muslims and also British black communities. And this is something that isn't well known, that levels of anti-Semitism in those communities are also relatively high compared to the general population. Oh, that's okay. You know, they're rallying against the system. But those anti-system attitudes can very quickly spill over into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And I think that that's the real issue that we have, that in certain institutions, there's a real comfort when it comes to discriminating against groups which are doing fairly well. They're quite, you know, they're progressing well economically and they may well have more of a tendency to reject tribal identitarianism. Or there are groups that may be lower down the socioeconomic ladder where there are issues, serious issues with tribal identity politics. But there seems to be a reluctance to tackle discriminatory attitudes within those groups. Um, with any conflict, that there always comes a time when the protagonists have to talk to each other, however unpalatable they might find that. I'm thinking most recently, perhaps, of the um, troubles in Northern Ireland and how, how, at some point, the British government sat down with the IRA. Can you see a situation with um, the Israelis and Hamas that they would ever talk to each other with a view to achieving a peaceful settlement? So uh, this is just a quick question around those who are calling for a criminalisation of the call for jihad. Uh, what are the thoughts on the implications for the risk of escalation of violence within the UK as a result of the police taking that sort of action? Hi, Costantin, just about your kind of comment about intersectionality, I don't think it matters that the concepts, um, you know, dismantle patriarchy, uh, dismantle whiteness, decolonialization, all that kind of thing. They don't, it doesn't really matter that they agree when actually the whole kind of intersectionality program is simply to dismantle the West. Mm. And all of those kind of facets agree with that. Um, and the language you said, I just interviewed Scott Adams for my new, I'm going to be launching a podcast soon. Uh, and I think what we need on our side is what he would call a master uh, persuader. Mm. Yeah. And just my last point really on Palestine and the uh, Gazans, I think you mentioned kind of support for Palestinians and Gazans. I think there's a strange paradox that kind of pro-Palestinian um, protesters seem to equate Palestinians and Hamas. Yet Hamas, there's no democracy in Gaza. There's no free elections in Gaza. There's there's none of that. You know, effectively Hamas is occupying Gaza. So um, what I've been doing, I've been kind of been a bit mischievous online, and I'm going to do this over at the um, the kind of pro-Palestinian merch store on uh, Palace Green at the minute, I'm going to go over and I'm going to ask if they have a free Palestine from Hamas flag <laughs> and see what kind of cognitive dissonance that uh, that unleashes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to add on a little bit to the very first question. Um, a couple of decades back, uh, German schools stopped teaching the Holocaust because 50% of the students said it didn't happen. And the other 50% said, well, if it did happen, it probably was a good thing. Um, and schools are a glimpse into the future. And one word the panel hasn't mentioned a single time is demography. We have the largest demographic change in Western Europe uh, in historic memory, uh, and the, the OECD published their recent numbers. The demographic energy that's still left comes largely to a significant part from immigration out of Muslim countries. So again, this might be good, this might be bad, but it's definitely not nothing. And if I hear, as the previous speaker said, why is it that, you know, among people below the age of 25, anti-Semitism uh, or anti-Israel sentiment is very high? I mean, I would assume that has something to do with the background, that has something to do with demographic change. And I mean, I guess, as they say, the future belongs to those who show up for it. And I think at some point we have to address this thing as well. 
I, I mean, that's why I said this problem is going to get worse uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, I also think it's a, it's not just a problem of where people are coming from. It's a problem of where they're coming to and how they're being assimilated and integrated. Rakib is my brother. He's a Muslim. And more people like him is something I would welcome with open arms. It's not about people's religion. It's about what happens when they get here, how they are treated, how they are welcomed. Are they learning the language? Are they fully integrating, etc.? He may disagree with me on aspects of that, perhaps. I don't know. Um, in terms of uh, the point about the call for jihad, the call for jihad is already illegal in this country. The fact that the police refuse to enforce the law is a completely separate issue. And if there are people who are going to cause violence because the people, the police of this country enforce the law, that is a very good reason to enforce the law. Those people should be arrested. Uh, they should be put in prison, which is what we do with violent criminals of any kind. And if they're foreign nationals, they should not be in this country. And the point about um, the way war ends is by talking is completely untrue. Uh, World War II did not end by talking. It ended by defeating the enemy. And from Israel's perspective in this situation, uh, I suspect that is exactly what they're going to attempt to do. Okay, anything you want to come back on? No, I, I just think that if you're just looking in the British context, you have this interesting sort of, you know, these dynamics um, going on where we do have public intellectuals in many public sector institutions. I think there is a problem in the universities when it comes to viewing certain events as legitimate acts of resistance. And I think that is a very serious problem. But then you also have a political establishment in the UK, which perhaps is instinctively pro-Israel. And then when you have these dynamics where younger people seem to be leaning more towards Palestine, these are tensions which are very, very difficult to reconcile. And I suspect they're dynamics which may be present in other European countries as well. Now, the gentleman's comment on demographic change I, th I think there's, there's no doubt that that may play a part into why there's certain attitudes which are more strongly held in younger sections of the population. But a lot of these attitudes you're referring to, they're also in the native populations as well. So I think that there needs, it's not just a demographic issue. I think there's also, there's sort of inter intergenerational dynamics are really um, feeding into this. Yeah, no. Yeah, so just on the demographics point, I do I recognise I think that's a very important point. But at the same time, that more Moroc more Belgian Muslims went to fight for ISIS than Moroccan Muslims. I think that's really interesting because I think that there's a particular form of mm. Muslim identity politics that is cultivated in the West. Yeah. Um and many of the more radical um, Islamists are ones that are British born. Many of the terror attacks that we've had in, in, in the UK and in France were from British born. Um, so I think that that's something that we need to deal with and understand. Why is it um, that a particular section of often actually quite well-educated um, young Muslim men um, are drawn to Islamist um, extremism? And I've as we've been talking about the ripping of posters of, of um, kidnapped um, people and so on, actually, I was very surprised to see many of the images where were women that weren't wearing a hijab mm. and that ostensibly were quite integrated. Mm. Um, so why is that that um, that that is appealing um, to some Muslims? And I've wondered, and I think that's a, another discussion. But you know, is there something? Um, in, in a kind of crisis of identity where this is a, a way of like renewing their sense of Muslim identity. Um, so I think that whilst demographics is undoubtedly um, something that we should talk about in immigration, there's something cultivated within their West that creates a victim identity um, that is attractive to many people. Mm -hmm. Tom. No, I think that's a really important point. And it's been part of the picture since the fatwa onwards, actually. Yeah. There's, uh, the, you, you look at the accounts of some of the demonstrations calling for the satanic verses to be banned, where the books were burnt, where people were 
shouting slogans about why he should meet his death and so on. You would often see these accounts referencing the fact that these aren't the kind of pious conservative, more traditional. These are often young, well-integrated, not seemingly particularly observant, because we do have this thing where within the West itself, a form of kind of Muslim identity politics has sort of taken root. And in large part, I think it's because we have created a whole infrastructure which urges members of ethnic minority communities to, first of all, believe that they live in a society that hates them, that wants to destroy them, that has no place for them whatsoever. That's a that's a top-down message which is being received. And also for many, many decades now, a whole infrastructure of multiculturalism, which is to address minority groups on the basis of them being a minority group mm. rather than an individual in society or, and a citizen. Um, it, again, the Rushdie affair, this is something, the, the campaign basically emerged out of the kind of original multicultural kind of array of various different groups and organizations which were founded with this belief that we need to treat them almost as these they're not they're not really british they're this kind of separate tribe who live here and we have to address them on that particular basis so a lot of this is it's that combination of yes there is the immigration question but what is but there is first of all the lack of integration also to a certain extent the society they're being integrated into or the overriding narrative they're being integrated into certainly from the top down is one that says we hate you really and that's definitely got to stop. That's definitely a big part of the problem here. Everything uh, in, in uh, every discussion we have now uh, has been hijacked uh, for political reasons. Um, and I just wanted to introduce the idea that a lot of this has occurred because of the um, constitutional changes that have happened in the last 25 years. Uh, so the quangos, uh, the Lords is no longer a revisionist chamber. Um, you know, we have Rishi Sunak being potentially legally sued by his own MPs for wanting to discuss policy. Um, a judiciary that, that is, is now asked to uh, act with its conscience and not with the law. So geopolitics and social media aside, I just feel that we, I think in our mention, we lost the institutions and how do we get them back? Because I think that's a, a huge part of the problem. I think that's a great question for you to kick off on. Obviously. Well, I just, uh, it's not quite the same point, but I think it's an important point. I, I met a guy called Steve Hilton. He used to mm. be David Cameron's advisor uh, when I was uh, in America. We went for a drink, became 10 drinks, and he, he started, when he started telling me how the civil service wor works, he wanted me, to, I, by the end of it, I wanted to get the flamethrower out. <laughs> <laughs> because I actually, I, I'm not even sure we have a proper democracy anymore in this country because in order to implement government policy, there is such a, a blob of, of uh, bureaucrats and quangos and all the rest of it that is in the way um, that I think that is why there is such um, stagnation uh, about policy and ideas, etc., because it's very, very difficult to get anything done, even if you are elected. Uh, getting elected is not easy, and then you get elected and you can't implement 90% of the policies. And the point he made was that, obviously, in uh, 2010, they had a coalition, and because of the coalition, they had to have a coalition agreement. In other words, they actually had to write down all the commitments that they made. And when they went through the things that ended up being on the agenda of the government, 80% of the things on there were not actually in the coalition agreement. And almost all the things that were in the coalition agreement were not being implemented. Mm. And that was because the civil service essentially slows it down. And your point expands that even further. So, yeah, I think we're in, in a really bad place in that way. Rakeem, do we need to wage uh, jihad against the <laughs> uh, Listen, don't, don't get me in trouble now. 
no, but I think I think the gentleman makes a good point. I see it as a it's a real cultural problem where people operating in those institutions are unable to put aside their ideological biases. The issue is that their ideological biases is contaminating how they carry out their duties and responsibilities. And I think that is a very serious problem. If you if you work in public service, your priority should be fulfilling your duties and responsibilities to the best of your ability in a, in a neutral and balanced way. And I think that when you see a lot of our institutions, unfortunately, I think people lack the emo- emotional maturity to be able to do that. How that changes, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, it feels like everything from schools to the NHS to uh, the police just is consumed by this ideology that has no, um, you know, no purchase with the public. Mm. It's a complete opposite to what most people think. Yeah, I think pretty much all of our institutions uh, have a crisis of legitimacy. They don't know what their moral purpose is and they're constantly scrambling to find new values to justify themselves. I mean, um, I don't know what, uh, it was an Ivy League university, but it was quite interesting with all of the protests going on in in some of these universities in America. All of a sudden, one of the heads at the university became a free speech advocate. You know, they were saying that, you know, we have to, um, you you can handle, we need to handle ideas that that we disagree with when people have been talking about the fact that universities have become hotbeds for for censorship for for several years. And Mm. it's this hypocrisy across institutions Similar, we've talked about um, the BBC, but there's all of these institutions where their core moral purpose, whether that's museums uh, protecting the past and and, and defending history, um, you know, to, to galleries, institutions to you know demonstrate great art and, and culture, um, are no longer confident in their ability to do that, and therefore um, look to social justice ideas, environmentalism, all of these different things that um, away from the actual political domain um, and impose these ideas on other people without any discussion and debate. And I think that's a really big problem. I think that we need to call it out um, and call these institutions up for, for essentially engaging in an incredibly anti-democratic way. Tom, your final thoughts? No, I think... Just to echo that point, I think that's really important because we have ended up with a situation where the civil service, the blob, the quangos, etc., see it as their role to frustrate the programme of the elected government (laughs) rather than to implement it. And as soon as you have a minister even mildly chide them for this, you would think they'd throw them down a flight of stairs. You know, there's this kind of weeping for the civil servant who was sworn at by Prissy Patel, you know, or something like this. I think it shows that kind of pearl clutching, I think, shows that we've pushed back or the government's pushed back or this has been called out and they've kind of been recognised what it is that they're doing. This is a bit tricky when you're talking about the civil service, of course, but I think especially the lesson that we've seen recently in Australia with the um, referendum that they had there is in terms of rejecting the voice to parliament, this attempt to enshrine this new institution, this new kind of identity politics in their constitution, just shows that democracy really is the solution to all of this. Um, the public, the wisdom of the people is the corrective to all of this nonsense, not least because it is by definition elitist. So while that's difficult with a civil service, I think holding these things to account, continuing to push the public into the conversation, that's really how we're going to get there, even if it seems like a long road ahead of us at this point. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and can you, we all give our lo- one of our lovely guests a round of applause. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.